0: Um, So, 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. "'Whose son are you, young man?' Saul asked him. David said, "'I am the son of your servant, Jesse, of Bethlehem.'" After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mehla. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now, become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met them with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death.
1: Thank you, uh, Jenny. And sorry to add to an already long reading, but it is important that we get those extra five verses for context because the passage opens with, well, as soon as that happened, here's what goes on. So we need to remind ourselves of what that was. So Israel was at war with the Philistines. Here comes Goliath. We all know this incredibly imposing man, the big man, the bad man, bigger and badder than anyone else, raised from birth to be a warrior And he's been standing out and challenging the men of Israel to man-on-man single combat, and not a single one of them, for 40 days, would take up the challenge. And then, out of nowhere, here comes this child. Not even a legal adult. Why is he there? Because he's delivering cheese? And he says he'll take up the challenge. Not only that, he'll take up the challenge without any armor. Not only that, he'll take on the challenge without a sword. And not only that, but he wins. He stands in front of Goliath without fear, without armor, without sword. And God gives him the victory. And so that's why we needed to look at the end of chapter 17, this little exchange with Saul and Abner wondering who exactly this guy is. We all would be. And as David comes off the battlefield, we see what I think is history's first post-match interview. (laughs) David, David, you've killed the giant Goliath. Just one question. Whose son are you? Now, if you've been following along, if you've been here the past few weeks, that might just ring slightly odd to you. In previous chapters, we've seen David has a part-time job already. He's a musician in, in Saul's court. He's been going backwards and forwards, splitting his time between playing music to calm Saul's tempers uh, and protecting his dad's flock out in the pasture. So in order to set that up, uh, we saw in chapter 16 that Saul wrote to Jesse, to David's father. He wrote to him to get his permission, although if you're the king, maybe maybe that permission is assumed, and, and we've seen it happen. We know that there was a letter. So what gives? Well... There are some people who think that these events are not being presented in the order that they happened in, and that David was invited to Saul's court after the fight with Goliath. We see it in the passage from that day on. Saul kept David near him, so maybe he wrote the letter afterwards. Maybe Saul wrote the letter and then forgot. Both of those might be right. Um, But actually, if you read through the story as we have been, I think there's a better explanation. Back in chapter 15, which we looked at a few weeks ago, after Saul disobeyed a direct order from God, Samuel came to him and Samuel gave him this message The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and he's given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. So from that point on, in chapter 15, Saul knows that he's lost God's favour. More than that, Saul knows that God's favor is now with someone else. Saul knows that God made him the king, and now God will unmake him. Saul knows that God has chosen someone else to take the throne. And now here comes this shepherd boy. Now here comes the only person who will stand in front of Goliath. Now here comes somebody who stands in front of the king... And says, I will go and do this thing because the God who saved me from the lion and the God who saved me from the bear will save me from Goliath. And then he goes out and does it. Saul's been watching, waiting. Saul's been looking to see who has God chosen to replace me? Who is God's favor on? And now here's David, who goes out and does something that's completely extraordinary goes out and does something that the great heroes of Israel do. So when Saul asks who David's father is, it's not because he's going to write to him and say, you'll never guess what I saw your boy do. No, Saul's asking because he's hoping that Abner will say, oh, yeah, no, that's David. He's Jesse's son. You know, Jesse, the great hero of the Battle of Aphek, who killed a 100 Philistines armed with nothing more than a sharp stick. Or he's hoping that David will say, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the man who trains your troops in extraordinary feats of marksmanship. Saul asks the question, who is this guy? Who is his father? Because he's hoping that the answer will give him an explanation that he can believe in for how David could have done what he did. Saul wants an explanation, because if there isn't one, well, then you've got to go back to the thing he doesn't want it to be. You've got to go back to David did that thing because he's God's favorite person, favored person, excuse me. The bad news for Saul here is that's not the answer. David is just the son of unremarkable Jesse. And so this moment at the end of chapter 17 that I asked to be added to the reading is the moment when Saul runs out of alternatives. This is the moment when Saul is confronted with the truth. David isn't someone who went out and did this in his own strength. David isn't the last scion of an incredible warrior line. Actually, what David said to Saul before he went and did it is true. He depended entirely on God to protect him. And so if David isn't an extraordinary person, then David must be the person who God has chosen to be king. David must be the person who God has anointed to rule Israel. And this isn't just me guessing. This isn't just me putting this on the text. Look at verse 12 with me in chapter 18. Saul knows that the Lord is with David and has departed from Saul. That's what he's been looking for. The person who Samuel has told him will come and take the throne from him. The person who Samuel has told him has been anointed in his place. And this is the moment where Saul is confronted with the truth that David is the king from now on. So that's where we are when chapter 18 starts. David is standing there holding the head of Goliath, having just done this extraordinary thing, and there's nothing else he can be except God's king. And the rest of the passage this morning shows a series of events that show two completely different reactions to that moment. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the events, we're going to look at the two people and how they react, And then we'll come back to what that means for us, and we'll apply it all at once. So we're going to go through each of the incidents first. And these two people, uh, obviously, are Saul and Jonathan. Uh, We know a lot about Saul. He's the current king of Israel. Jonathan is his oldest son. So he's the, the crown prince. He's next in line for the throne. Or right up until that moment, he was expecting to be the next person to sit on the throne. Anyway... We'll come to him in a second. Let's start with Saul. And you can see the answer scattered throughout the passage. So have a look uh, with me, please, at verse 8. What more can he, what more can David get but the kingdom? Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Verse 15, Saul was afraid of David. Verse 29, Saul became still more afraid of David. Saul is the king. Saul quite enjoys being the king. Saul is afraid of David because Saul doesn't want to give up his throne. He he likes the authority. He likes the position. He doesn't want somebody else in it. Quite simple. And so Saul's reaction throughout this passage is opposition. He's very determined to stay on the throne. And so he opposes David in a number of different ways. And so that's what we're going to frame the incidents as. So first, verses 10 and 11... Saul takes him on. David's playing the, uh, the liar in Saul's house, verse 10, apparently quite a risky proposition. Saul has a spear in his hand and, you know, just flat out throws it at David. Uh, not once, verse 11, but twice. It's absolutely fascinating to me that this doesn't get any more than two verses. Uh, I know some musicians. I know some people who have had some bad gigs. I don't know Anybody? who has had spears thrown at them, as far as I'm aware. Please tell me afterwards. And and look, I understand. Things were a bit different in the royal court in those days. It wasn't quite as civilised as it is now or or bound in. The king had unlimited authority, right? They could do what they wanted. But still, this is attempted murder. David doesn't fight. He doesn't resign and go back to tending the sheep. He doesn't file a complaint about the unsafe working environment. Just sidesteps the spear chalks it up to experience, and carries on serving. So that's the first way in which Saul tries to oppose David, and it's just a direct attack, straightforwardly trying to, trying to kill him. The second way is, is, thankfully, more subtle, and that is, having tried to take him on, he tries to box him in. Now, we know that Saul doesn't hate David He doesn't actually dislike the person at all. In fact, we're told very clearly in previous chapters that he likes him. What Saul hates is the idea of David the king. He doesn't want to give up his throne. Saul is the king. So Saul tries to make David be anything else, anything less. Don't be David the king. Then we're fine. I don't have a problem with you on a personal level. So verse 13. Saul makes David a general. Maybe if he enjoys being a general, maybe if he's focusing his time on leading his men, he won't think about the throne. Clearly, David has a talent for this. We see throughout this passage, he's extraordinarily successful. And Saul has no problem with him being general David, as long as he's not king David. Just to cement it, verse 17, Saul offers his daughter Merab as a reward, I guess, for his his prowess in battle. See, David, this is how it can be. This is how good it can be. Be a general. More than a general, be part of the royal family. Life can be good if you're good as a general. Just focus on that. Spend your time on that. Don't look for more. Be happy in your box. And, of course, maybe David will be less willing to try to take the throne if the guy he's trying to take it from is his father-in-law. Maybe he'll be Prince David, and he'll be very happy with that, instead of being King David. After it doesn't work out with with Merab, Saul tries again with his daughter uh, Michal. And this time we're told explicitly, just in case uh, it wasn't clear, verse 21, one of Saul's reasons is that Michal might be a snare to David. We're not going to dwell too much on what that might mean, but perhaps David might be happy in that relationship that might satisfy him. He might become a father. Maybe he'll be a family man. Maybe that's the box that he'll be content to stay in and not be interested in the crown. So that's strategy two. Saul tries to take him on, and he fails. He can't just eliminate him with the spear. So then maybe he can keep David somewhere he's comfortable being, and he can just be that guy and not be David the king, maybe, David can, uh, maybe Saul can box him in, David the general, David the prince, David the son-in-law, David the family man, not David the king, and then Saul's pretty thorough, uh, so there's a third strategy that he tries as well, um, at the same time actually as the second one, he tries to take David on, he tries to box him in, he also tries to set him up. This is sort of attached to the plan to marry David to one of his daughters. Both times he makes that offer, it's tied to David having to sort of put himself into battle, onto the front lines. So in verse 17, when Saul offers Merab, we're told explicitly that part of the motive here is to set David up. If Saul keeps David on the front lines, then perhaps the Philistines will take care of Saul's problem for him. And then, of course, uh, we get the grisly story in verses 21 to 27. Saul knows that Michal and David want to be married. And he also knows that David is too humble to think that he could marry into the royal family. Luckily for Saul, there was this tradition at the time of the bride price. And if you could pay the bride price, uh, then it didn't matter how humble you were because you would paid the bride price and that made it okay. But, of course, David's not from a wealthy family so he can't pay him money. And so Saul plants this idea that what he wants as a bride price is a 100 Philistine foreskins. Of course, he doesn't actually want 100 Philistine foreskins, and if I have to give you a reason for that, uh, then, well, <laughs> uh, then we're in trouble. Um, but the point is not the foreskins. Uh, there's a sentence I thought I'd never say. The point is that David will have to fight to get them. The point is that David will have to go out and take on 100 Philistines, as it turns out, 200, but 100 Philistines. He's setting David up to go into this combat. And again, he's hoping that this will be the end of his problem. He's hoping that one of those Philistines will be successful, will kill David, will take him out of the picture. David the king won't be a problem for Saul anymore. And Saul can sit on the throne. So that's where we are with Saul in that moment at the end of chapter 17. Saul is confronted with the king. Saul is confronted with the person who God has chosen to have authority instead of Saul. And Saul rejects him. And so he takes him on, he boxes him in, and he sets him up. So let's think about Jonathan now. Because he reacts in a completely different way. And that's interesting because he experiences the exact same moment as Saul does. He has the same realisation that God must be, uh, sorry, choosing David here to be the king of Israel. Why else would God have given him this victory? How else could he have achieved it? This is extraordinary. We lose sight of that because we grow up with this story, but this is on a, on a level with anything else. This is Moses parting the sea, Elijah calling down the fire. This is Gideon and the 300 routing the Midianites. This is on that level. This is the stuff that leaders, this is the stuff that the big uh, names in Israel's history, this is the stuff that people appointed by God go out and do. So in the same moment as Saul knows that David's coming for the throne, Jonathan knows it too. Jonathan woke up that morning thinking he would be the next king of Israel. And this is the moment where he realizes he's gone from next in line to never in line. And so maybe we'd understand it. More than that, perhaps we'd expect it that Jonathan would feel the same way as Saul does. Jonathan would oppose David. Jonathan would want that authority for himself. He would take him on. He'd box him in. He'd set him up. But no, that's not what we see. Jonathan doesn't take David on. Instead, he welcomes him in. Saul can't stand what David will be, so much so that he tries to kill him with a spear, twice. Whereas Jonathan, when he sees what David will be, verse 1, became one in spirit with David and love David as himself. Now we have to touch on this, because of the age we live in. There is no suggestion, there is no suggestion, that this is a romantic love on Jonathan's part. We are going to hear people say, if you haven't already, that there is a gay relationship between David and Jonathan. We're going to see a lot of Jonathan and David as we go on in 1 Samuel. The text never says it. It's not there. And I know that the cynics will tell us, well, of course the Bible wouldn't tell us about an inappropriate sexual relationship that one of its heroes had. And it's, of course, ironic that they say that about David, because the Bible does go on to tell us about an inappropriate sexual relationship that David has, and it's not with Jonathan. The Bible doesn't try to spare David's blushes. It is just not there in the text that this is romantic love. This is the sort of love that people had, and less so these days, but certainly more then had for those who God put in superior positions. This is the kind of love that in the Lord of the Rings, Sam has for Master Frodo, because he's his master. This is the love that in Downton Abbey, Carson and the, the, the goodies in the downstairs crew, I know there are some baddies as well, have for Lord Grantham, because he's their master. This is the love that people had when they were subjects for their king because he is their king. So when Saul tries to fight against what David will be, Jonathan's reaction of love shows that he accepts it. He responds in the way that people responded to their monarch, with love. Jonathan welcomes David into the position in his life that God has given him. And then immediately after that, Jonathan publicly puts him above. Verses 3 and 4. Jonathan makes a covenant. That's a a word for a binding promise with David. Now, we don't have the words of that covenant, so we don't need to know what they were. But we do have this visual uh, picture that's painted for us. He puts his clothes and he puts his weapons onto David. And this is Jonathan, the next in line for the throne. So whatever robe he's wearing, whatever sword he's carrying, by definition, that's the robe and and that's the sword of the crown prince of Israel. So when Jonathan puts them onto David, David is now wearing the robe of the crown prince of Israel. David is carrying the sword of the prince of Israel. Whatever status Jonathan had, he visually transfers that To David. I don't think that can mean anything else. Other than Jonathan publicly acknowledging. That David is his king. We saw Saul scrambling to find any box he could put David into. Any life he could find for David. So long as it wasn't king. We saw Saul trying to box him in. Jonathan does the opposite. He accepts David as what he is. He acknowledges what he is, what he will be, and he visually acknowledges it, even though that means accepting that he himself will never sit on the throne. Jonathan acknowledges that David's claim to that position, David's claim to that authority, is the right one because God has chosen him, and so Jonathan puts David above himself. Uh, and then, just at the start of chapter nineteen, when Saul's planning to kill Jonathan, uh, David rather. It's Jonathan who speaks out to try and protect him. and Clearly, that can't be easy for Jonathan. It's his father that he's going and speaking out to. They're going to come into direct conflict because Jonathan chooses to speak out for David. More than that, this is the king who can have him imprisoned or even killed. And we know that he has violent mood swings and he's not afraid to throw a spear at a person. This is a direct order that he's given to go out and kill David. So when Jonathan speaks out in verses four and five, he's taking a massive risk. He's risking his family relationship and even he's risking his life to speak out for David. And yet, look at what he says. It's very direct. He's not trying to fudge this. He doesn't go to Saul and say, Look, well, I see both sides. He's done some stuff. You've done some stuff. He doesn't say, Wow, killing him's a bit much. Why don't you just imprison him or exile him? No. Jonathan says outright. Why would you do anything to David? He is innocent. More than innocent. He's done nothing but good for you and your people. Leave him alone. So there you have the two contrasting reactions from our passage. Two men, both confronted with the person God has chosen to have the authority over them instead of them. One rejects it, one accepts. You can probably see where I'm going with this, but I have to say the words. We've heard at times during this sermon series that David is a type of Jesus. That's a very specific way that we're using the word type. We're not saying um, in the same way that we'd say Diet Coke is a type of Coke. It's a sort of older sense of it, and it means something like a picture. It's a bit more specific than that, but picture will do for now. David is a type of Christ. He is a picture of Christ. And I want to be clear that this isn't something that theologians have made up. Sam took us through some verses last week about Jesus himself, explaining how the scriptures pointed to him. When it comes to David being a picture of Jesus, the Bible is absolutely chock full of things that say that. The Messiah, the king that God promises, who we know will be Jesus, is heavily identified, Heavily identified with David. Here's uh, one example, if we can get that up. This is a prophecy given to Ezekiel. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And you see the same name come up towards the end. My servant David will be their prince forever. That doesn't mean David. That doesn't mean that God's going to resurrect David to come and rule over his people. No, no. It means the king from David's line. It means the Messiah. It means Jesus. That's the level of association between David and Jesus in the Bible. David's name is literally used in places to mean Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that everything David did is what Jesus would do. But more often than not, we're going to see Jesus illustrated in David's life. And that is absolutely the case this morning. In the Gospels, we see what happens When Jesus is on earth, we see people confronted with the king. And we see some people reacting like Saul. Think about the Jewish religious leaders. They try to take him on and challenge him on theology. They try to box him in and say he's a healer, he's a teacher, he's a magician. Anything other than what he claims to be, anything other than the king. And of course they try and set him up. They try and make him give an answer that will make him unpopular with the crowd or get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. But also, we see people reacting like Jonathan. Think of the disciples that Jesus calls while they're fishing. Without hesitation, they welcome him into their lives as king. They go with him. They put Jesus and his mission above their own lives. They drop their nets. They drop the way that they earn money, and they go. And they spend the rest of their lives speaking out, even when that means persecution, even when that means execution. There are lots of other examples for us in the Bible. But let's fast forward to today. Jesus is still God's appointed king. We see in Revelation, he's reigning now in heaven. And one day, he will reign over the new creation. Jesus is the king God has appointed over every one of our lives and when we're confronted with that when we have that moment where we understand who Jesus claims to be and what that would mean for us we have these same two choices Saul or Jonathan rejection or acceptance shove off God I'm in charge no to your rules I think is the acronym or a new life in Christ's kingdom So it shouldn't surprise us that we still see these reactions. Taking Jesus on, saying that the Bible exaggerates or lies about what he did, or just saying that his teaching is wrong or evil. Boxing Jesus in, saying he was a good teacher or a prophet or one of many ways that you can get right with God. Or setting Jesus up by pointing out bad things that people in churches have done or that have been done in his name to try and turn public opinion against him. And, of course, we still see the reaction of Jonathan, welcoming him in, putting him above, and speaking out. Even now, huge numbers of people around the world, in China, in India, in the UK, in Baldock, in this room, are giving their lives to him, welcoming him in, putting him above, and speaking out. Many or most of us here have had the same reaction as Jonathan. And to you, I'd say this morning, this passage gives us an incredible example of what that should look like. We're not perfect people. We're not going to get it right all the time. In particular, I think we still can fall into the trap of boxing Jesus in, rather than putting him above. Just as Saul wanted David to be happy being a general, or a son-in-law, or something with some status, some authority, but less than he really was. I think we can still fall into that trap with Jesus. We can be very comfortable with Jesus the comforter, but we can struggle with Jesus the purifier. We can say boldly that Jesus is our hope for heaven, but sometimes we want him to stay in that box and not have so much to do with our lives today. Or perhaps we're even happy to say that he's the Lord of our lives, but not on a Friday night. If we feel ourselves sliding that way, if this commitment that Jonathan makes to David is the commitment that we have made, but we feel ourselves slipping up, this is a passage we can come back to. And in particular, that picture. If we think we're trying to exert authority in some small way over our own lives instead of letting Jesus have it, look at that picture of Jonathan taking off his royal robes, putting them onto Jesus. Putting them onto David, but we would put them onto Jesus. Not Jesus as we want him to be, but Jesus as he is. Lord and King over all areas of our lives. Maybe some of us here would say we haven't had the moment. Not yet. We haven't yet been confronted with who Jesus is and what he means for us. Maybe you're still looking into the claims. Maybe you're still asking your questions. Maybe you're still metaphorically chatting to Abner, trying to find out whose son this is. If that's the case, if any of the elders or staff or anyone else here can help you, please do speak to us. We want you to get to that moment. We want you to be confronted with the king so that you can respond. It is important. And finally, for others here this morning, perhaps the message is that you don't quite stand where you thought you did. Maybe you look at the reaction of Jonathan and realise you've never accepted Jesus like that. It's never been wholehearted. It's never been unconditional. Maybe you look at Saul and you know that you recognise some of those behaviours. Maybe you know that you're taking Jesus on or boxing him in or setting him up. Perhaps walking in this morning, you'd have said you were a neutral or a searcher Or maybe you'd have said you were a Christian. But maybe this passage has helped you to understand that actually when it comes down to it, you still want to sit on the throne. And you're going to do anything you can to stop Jesus taking that seat from you. Well, let me say, Saul's opposition to David was doomed to fail. David took the throne because God had anointed him for it. No matter what Saul did, And that is the same with Jesus. His rule is inevitable. It started now, and it will come in the new creation. You can fight it all you want. You can't win. So if this morning you see more of Saul in your response to Jesus than you see of Jonathan, it's time to turn around. It's time to acknowledge Jesus as what he is. It's time to accept that God's anointed him to have authority over your life time to welcome him in and put him above. Let's pray. Father, thank you that every word of your scripture is helpful to us. Thank you for the uh, picture that you give us of responses to your son. And Father, we pray this morning uh, for those of us who have made that commitment that we would recognize areas uh, where we Uh, Fall short and that you would encourage us you would build us up to respond more like jonathan to take those royal robes off ourselves and put them on your son and father pray for uh, people who still haven't made that commitment this morning that they would be keen to find out more uh, that they would be confronted with that moment of who your son is and that they would respond as jonathan did Amen. amen